Welcome to PwC's weekly accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's episode is a continuation of a series of episodes to keep you posted on frequently asked questions surrounding the accounting impacts of the coronavirus. Today's focus is revenue collectability. We previously addressed this issue in a podcast released last March, but today we're bringing you an update with specific considerations for the current environment. And to lead the discussion, I'm happy to welcome back PwC partners and frequent podcast guests, Pat Durbin and Angela Ferguson, joining me remotely from their homes on both sides of the country. And with that, let's get started. So Pat and Angela, thanks so much for joining me today to revisit a topic that we actually spoke about a little over a year ago, but we thought it made sense to revisit given the current environment and the potential impact of COVID-19. And that's on the interaction of collectability with the revenue standard. And I know often we think about collectability only after the fact, but Angela, you previously educated me that we have to think about it before we even recognize the revenue. So can you take us through the model? Yeah, sure, Heather. And like you said, I mean, sometimes we think of collectability just when we're thinking about receivables, but actually collectability comes into play at the beginning of a transaction. When you have a new contract, you actually have to conclude that collection is probable in order to have a valid contract under the revenue standard and to start applying the revenue model. So when you're thinking about whether collection is probable, the term probable is going to have the same meaning that we use in many other accounting standards, which is likely to occur. And there's no bright line as far as what does that mean from a quantitative standpoint, but we usually think about 75% or higher likelihood of something occurring. But a couple of things I wanted to point out when you're looking at whether collection is probable for a new revenue contract The first thing is that, especially for services that are performed over time, if the company intends to stop performing, if the customer doesn't pay, then you don't have to assess collectability beyond what the company would perform, right? So you don't have to look past when you would stop performing if the customer wasn't paying. However, there are certainly circumstances where a company either can't stop performing, for example, like a utility company who isn't allowed to turn off their service, or they may not necessarily plan to stop performing right away just because a customer isn't paying because they're going to intend to be giving them a little bit of a break or a grace period or maybe a long grace period if they um, stop paying. So in both of those cases, the probability assessment will still come into play for the entire contract. The other thing to consider is whether you expect to give the customer a concession, meaning you don't plan to enforce payment of the entire contract amount. And in that case, you're first going to reduce the contract price for any expected concession before you assess whether collection of that transaction price is probable. Okay, so then Pat, I guess if I take a step back and think about the overall model, how does the overlay of the current COVID-19 circumstances impact how we apply the model? Yeah, well, I think you you hit it in your your tee up and then sort of as we go through the model, the way Angela described it, the critical evaluation, at least in this context, is at the inception of the contractual arrangement. And most companies today have some process in place already to do a credit evaluation on their customers before they start doing business. But 
you know, a lot of times you have long-term customer relationships. You do some pretty high-level sort of credit analysis based on what's available, you know, D&B studies, et cetera. And all that's going to have some backward-looking feel to it. Because of the severity and sort of the rapidity of the decline in economic activity here in the current situation, some of those historical approaches just may not really be sufficient. So you really need to think more about what's the expectation of how my customers have really been affected and what do I think is going to happen now in this current environment? Yeah. And I think, Pat, it's a good reminder, like many other areas of gap that we're seeing that your existing process may not be really adequate to address the current circumstances. Angela, something that you touched on earlier, which is that if you expect to provide price concessions, this can also impact the accounting. And can you talk a little bit more about this? Because I would expect in the current environment, this is something we will likely start seeing more of. At the beginning of the contract, you expect to give a price concession to the customer. That's going to impact the transaction price, right? Or the measurement of revenue for that contract. Um, and situations where we seen this very commonly happening in the past include in the healthcare industry, where the amounts that are initially billed aren't necessarily what the company plans to ultimately enforce, right? So what you recognize as revenue is going to be the reduced amount that you actually plan to enforce. And so this isn't necessarily that common sort of outside some individual industries like the healthcare industry. But now we are starting to get questions from companies who intend to give what I call goodwill gestures to their customers in the current environment. And so now more companies may be thinking about a plan to be giving a price concession to a customer. And what I'd say is that this is an area where judgment is really going to be required because it's certainly easier to support an intent to give a price concession if you have a history of doing so. But if you don't have a history and you haven't maybe explicitly offered the price concession to the customer, there's going to be a lot of judgment around why do you believe you intend to give a price concession and the estimate of that price concession. If there is an expected price concession, revenue is recognized again at the lower amount after reducing for that expected concession, assuming that lower amount is considered probable being collected, like we've talked about earlier. And then you basically follow the variable consideration model, meaning that that estimate is updated each period for any changes in facts and circumstances. So there is going to be really a big difference between a situation where you assume collection isn't probable, meaning there's no contract for accounting purposes and you're not going to be recognizing revenue versus concluding on the other hand that you expect to give a price concession, which means you are going to recognize revenue for a lower amount, which is now uh, variable and you'll be updating at each period. Yeah, maybe, Angela, I'd just add one additional sort of type of this goodwill gesture that we might see in the current environment. And it might just be providing extended payment terms or more time for your customer to pay. So not an actual reduction in the amount of consideration, but just more time to pay the agreed consideration. The important thing to think about there is while it could have an impact on your collectability assessment, 
it doesn't automatically mean collectability is improbable. And I guess importantly, if you think back to years ago under old gap, we had sort of a presumption that extended payment terms were likely going to mean it was difficult to be able to recognize revenue. That's not the case under the current revenue standard. It's really just assessment of collectability or whether collection is probable. The only thing I would point out, if you extend those payment terms significantly, meaning beyond one year from when it was otherwise due, you may have now introduced a significant financing component into a revenue arrangement, which would trigger some accounting consideration. Specifically, you have to now pull out that significant financing component treated as a financing, and then you've now reduced your transaction price for the revenue arrangement by the amount of that financing. You know, you guys, obviously, one of the things we're focused on here is probability of collection. And you indicated something you need to do up front. But Angela, I assume this is not a set it and forget it model. Yeah, right. It never is. So if collection is not probable initially, that is something that you're going to continue to reassess on a regular basis. Um, So the situation might change or the customer might start making regular payments. So at the beginning, you're not sure. You can't get to a probable threshold for collection. But then for an overtime contract, the customer does start making regular payments. You may then at a certain point in time change your conclusion and conclude that collection is now probable. On the other hand, if at contract inception, you conclude collection is probable, so you're applying the revenue standard and you're starting to recognize revenue, you don't need to reassess that unless there's a significant change in facts and circumstances. So if there is a significant change, the revenue before you do that reassessment is not impacted. You don't have to, you don't, for example, have to reverse that revenue. It stays the same. Um, of course, any receivables you've recorded, you may need to assess those for impairment, but you sort of leave alone the past as far as revenue recognition. But after you do the reassessment, you would stop recognizing revenue prospectively. So it's going to be really important to determine you know, when is that significant change in facts and circumstances, which triggered the reassessment and would cause you to change your uh, revenue recognition on a go-forward basis. Right. And I'm sure in some cases there would be something discreet to point at, but if I think of how quickly things have changed over the past just few weeks, it seems like it's going to be difficult in the current circumstances to identify when things did change significantly. So Pat, how can we help people think about that? Well, I think you're right, Heather. I do think it's it's a challenge, especially because we're now dealing with this situation, presumably in many cases, where we thought collectability was probable at the outset. So we've been recognizing revenue. And then really, when did I have this significant change in facts and circumstances that leads me to now conclude collection is not probable going forward? It's definitely going to be a set of facts and circumstances evaluation and sort of each situation. So amidst all the other accounting challenges people have to deal with, this is probably one more. But I I don't think there's a uh, sort of a clear, bright line. You're just going to have to work through that diligence. And I think the important thing is what Angela pointed out earlier is that it is a prospective adjustment. So we may have had a tendency in the past to sort of say, well, they can't pay now, so I probably didn't have the right conclusion before. 
So I should reverse that revenue maybe within a quarter, right? If it all happens within a quarter, which may possibly be the case here. As long as you're comfortable with that initial judgment about collection is probable at the outset here, then assuming you've got the right set of facts and circumstances and now conclude it's not probable, that's a prospective only and the revenue that you've already recognized stays. So then, Pat, I think your point is each company will have to consider for itself when those facts and circumstances may have changed. That's right. And again, unfortunately, it's it's not, not an easy one-size-fits-all answer. It's going to depend a lot on the sector, the industry, geography, and like a lot of things in accounting, contemporaneous documentation of all those judgments is going to be important. Now we've talked about assessing whether collection is probable. Why don't we move on to the accounting if you conclude that collection is not probable and how you should deal with that? So, Angela, can you take us through the basics of that model? Sure. So, if collection is not probable, and we're talking about collection of the entire transaction price, or significantly all of the transaction price, then you don't start applying the revenue model because you really don't have a valid contract. And so, no revenue is recognized. And what I think is a kind of a surprise to some people is that that's even the case if you start to collect cash from the customer. Because any payments that you receive from the customer are going to be deferred unless you meet certain criteria. And the criteria is that the payment is non-refundable and then one of three things that has occurred. So the first would be that you've completed all the performance and collected substantially all the consideration. The second would be that uh, you've actually legally terminated the contract. And the third would be that the contract is really effectively complete. Even if you haven't legally terminated it, you've stopped performing and you have no further obligations. So even if you've started to collect cash, and this is where I think it can be a surprise, you can't just default to cash basis you know, revenue recognition. You do have to meet one of those three criteria in order to recognize any revenue. But the one thing I would remind people is, like I said before, you do continue to reassess that assess that judgment around whether collection is probable. So if you have a customer who is paying on a regular basis, you might get to a point where you change your conclusion and decide collection is probable, and you would start recognizing revenue in that case. All right. So, Angela, it's helpful to understand the model. And I think many of our listeners may be now trying to think through how this really impacts their accounting as of March 31. And Pat, is there any context you can give as companies are kind of thinking this through for their close? Well, yeah, I do think when you sort of step back from this, I mean, the way the model is laid out, it sounds like there's some pretty challenging judgments that have to be made all along the way in this reassessment. And and clearly in the current environment, that, that can seem to add a lot of stress to the system. I mean, I think it's maybe helpful just to sort of take a step back and think about the different types of business models and maybe where this is likely to be more prevalent. Certainly in a lot of businesses that maybe have a very short um, order to cash cycle, this is not going to be a big deal. Um, maybe, you know, online commerce in the retail space, for example, might be a much bigger deal in the longer term contracting space, maybe where you have uh, big long term projects, or maybe you've got multi year um, outsourcing arrangements, some of those types of arrangements definitely could be a lot more 
challenging to get your arms around. But I think, again, like everything, it really comes down to understanding your facts and circumstances and really how much effort you need to put into this. Right. So I think definitely understanding the model and then applying it to your facts and circumstances, as you said, it, it, it could vary. All right. So we've now covered the assessment of collectability and revenue, but let's look at the other side of the coin, which is receivables. And so a lot of companies adopted the new credit losses model this quarter. How do they think about the interplay between what we've just discussed and assessing the impairment of their trade receivables? Yeah, like as we've been discussing throughout this whole podcast, um, the first assessment of whether collection is probable is before you even recognize revenue. Um, but once you do recognize revenue and record a receivable or a contract asset, you know, that's when CECL is going to come into play because those receivables and contract assets will now be under a CECL model for companies who are adopting this quarter. And they'll be need, need to assess those balances to determine, um, you know, whether there are credit losses associated with those balances. So there is, you know, it's kind of a two-step process. And as Pat talked about earlier, usually there would be a lot of stress on a conclusion that a receivable or a contract asset is impaired if that receivable was recognized fairly recently. So at some earlier point in time, you had concluded that uh, collection was probable and recognized revenue. Now you're looking at this receivable you recorded and saying that it's impaired. However, you know, these are pretty unusual times. I think it's going to really be important to document those judgments. You know, why do you believe that the uh, receivable is impaired? You know, when did that change occur? And just be able to reconcile that to any earlier conclusions that um, you were able to recognize revenue initially. And I would certainly refer people, Heather, to the podcast that you recently did on CECL and the impact of the current environment, where there was a lot of discussion about how to think about CECL during these times and some of the considerations that will need to come into play. And one of the biggest challenges will be you know, for receivables, not necessarily being able to rely on historical experience for being able to collect from customers in the past, but having to you know, think about what happened recently and also, to some extent, looking forward to a future forecast. Although I think it will be slightly easier for trade receivables that tend to have a somewhat shorter life because you won't have as long of a future period to look out to. But again, if you're extending payment terms or maybe have longer-term receivables, it's definitely going to be challenging in this environment to to apply that that new thought process. Yeah, I mean, maybe Angela, I, I would just add. I mean, because this this all sounds fairly challenging, right? In the current environment, with so much uncertainty, and there's so many other judgments outside of revenue and receivables that we're talking about here today. Like the way I've been trying to think about the receivable piece of this, at least, is in a lot of ways, it's a lot more finite than some of the other assets that probably have a much longer duration on them. So if you think about it, okay, I've got to make a collectability assessment for my new revenue arrangements, but that's the here and now. I've got some receivables on the books from revenue I've already recognized, but those have a fairly you know, short window on them. And again, it's a finite number. And then it just kind of rolls as I get new information, which I'm going to be getting pretty regularly here. So 
I don't know, to me, it helps just not to be so overwhelmed with like, I don't know what the world's going to look like a year from now. But when we're talking about, you know, revenue contracts and receivables, sometimes we have a much shorter horizon to deal with. So it can maybe make it a little less stressful. Not that it's easy, but uh, maybe not quite as overwhelming. Yeah, although, Pat, I think people might settle these days for knowing what the world will look like a month from now, but your point is yeah. well taken. So um, so then, Angela, Pat, all very helpful for our listeners. Have follow-up questions from this, particularly if they're dealing with these circumstances, where it's the best place to go for more information? Um, yeah, you can certainly look to our revenue guide. Um, we have a section on collectability and um, the impact of determining whether you have a contract, and that would be in um, Chapter 2. Uh, we also created a flow chart uh, a year ago when you had your first podcast with um, Pat, and I think that could also be helpful for our listeners. So we will re-issue um, that along with this podcast. Great. Thank you. And definitely, I do encourage people dealing with these issues to check out that flow chart because it takes you through step-by-step and and then you can match up what you just heard from Pat and Angela today with that process. So Angela, Pat, thanks again. Really appreciate the insight. No problem. Thanks. We have one more episode for you this week and it's on the CARES Act. We'll include some background, touch on some accounting issues, and then go into the latest developments from the FASB's April 8th meeting. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcast. And I'd love to hear from you. So write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com or to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.